anything can be a hat. You know, what's the most beautiful hat? A lily tucked behind a child's ear in Sri Lanka. A black satin ribbon on Coco Chanel's head with a twist of veiling put into it. So sometimes the hats that I and other milliners are take weeks and weeks to make but sometimes the things which is most spontaneous also almost unusual can be a hat welcome everybody i am susie menkes editor of vogue international at condé nast and you are listening to my podcast creative conversations as a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry i want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. In this second episode of Creative Conversations, I'm pleased to be joined remotely by milliner extraordinaire Stephen Jones. From Diana Ross to Kate Moss, Lady Gaga to Rihanna, Stephen Jones has dressed the heads of everyone who matters. Born in Cheshire and schooled in Liverpool, Stephen Jones moved to London in the late 1970s as a St Martin student tasting the club scene. By 1980, Jones had opened his first millinery salon in the heart of London's Covent Garden. And soon everyone from Boy George to Diana Princess of Wales, rock stars to royalty, wanted to sport his designs. A radical collaborator with some of the world's leading fashion names, Stephen Jones has a rich history of interpreting a variety of different brands into legendary headgear. At our 2016 Condé Nast Luxury Conference in South Korea, Stephen talked to me about being the in-house milliner at Dior when John Galliano was the designer. On another planet, he worked with Ray Kawakubo of Comte des Garçons and of course with Vivian Westwood. With a career now spanning over 35 years in the industry, Stephen Jones is one of the most lauded milliners of his generation. He continues to bring wit, thoughtfulness and fun to his creations, and I cannot wait to hear what goes into making some of the world's most fabulous hats. Hello Stephen, it's so special for Comte des Nast to have you here. for our second episode of Creative Conversations podcast. I know we're having this conversation remotely under lockdown, but with your history in hats, you're giving me a head start. Yes, Susie, I am. And how are you, my dear? How are you, how is the lockdown um affecting you? We're not going to Heathrow anymore, are we? We're not going to Heathrow anymore. We're not travelling, and we also have to think. It's been a shock to everyone's system, I think. You know this sudden stop from COVID-19 has forced everyone to think about what you've been talking about the crazy speed of fashion since the new millennium. You know, I can't even count the number of shows you've done, not to mention all your hat collections and private sales. Do you think that fashion and its accessories, as with many other creative areas, has been offered a severe warning? Slow down. I think certainly the fashion providers have been given. The fashion consumers I think have a slightly different point of view because I think that fashion and appearance has still got that magical thing that people are attracted to and always will be. I think you know when this is over people will 
want to dress up and celebrate and be consumers again. Absolutely. You know, whether you're buying a T-shirt for £5 or whether you're buying haute couture, it's the same magical thing that fashion and appearance can give you. So I think it's two different things. Certainly, as far as we're concerned in the fashion business, yes, absolutely everybody, every designer who I work with thinks they're working too fast, that too many clothes and accessories are being produced. And um, But the fashion business is, is at the moment has been set up in this way for so many years for it to pull the brakes on it need to have needed to have something like this terrible virus in order for it to think again um but i don't exactly know what the future is going to bring but i know that talking to everybody on our side suddenly they're having to face you know a white wall um not going to the airport not doing all those things which really constitute our world now and it's probably a good thing that we're really thinking about it leaving aside what we're going through and everyone is going through at the moment i want to take my memory back and yours to the exhibition of your hats at the Brighton Pavilion about this time last year, I think. It reinforced my idea that your creative works of art, rather than just something that sits on the head, are really something magical. Do you think of yourself as a milliner, that formal word, or are you an artist? And what's the difference? Oh, I'm never really sure, Susie. And it changes every day and probably every minute. Um, Funnily enough, the word milliner... When I first started back in 1400, no, back in, in 1980, um, nobody used the word milliner at all. It was something that was really only used in the 1950s. I think the idea of milliner really went out in the 60s, because if you were going to Bieber, for example, you know, you picked up a floppy felt hat and that was a world away from the rather genteel world of millinery. But to me, I loved that slightly quirky British sense of millinery, which is why I use milliner. But I know other other hat makers don't like the word milliner because it is too retro, too ar- archaic. But am I an artist? I'm a milliner. I think a combination of the two things, really. It's only when I look back on certain hats, um, maybe a year afterwards or something, I, I see this sort of artistic qualities. But maybe it's for other people like yourself to judge and you could say that milliners are designers and therefore work with the public but artists also are designers and work with the public truth be known (laughs) so i'm never quite sure it's a sliding scale one thing is in japan they have a word which i don't know what it is for just a creative person so i think that's maybe whatever that japanese word is and i'm sure somebody can tell us will would describe me most of all Well, I think that also a lot of your work is different from just an artistic piece because it's about collaboration, firstly with your clients, whether they're going to a family wedding or one of those fancy summer season events like Ascot races that have just been cancelled. Do you build a relationship with these women who have your hats for an event? Absolutely. You know, people can throw clothes away or give them to somebody else or shoes even, but people never, ever give hats away because they have so many memories. So often when I'm making a hat for somebody, it's for a special occasion. Is it for going to the races or a wedding or launching a ship or whatever, whatever, whatever. And 
funnily enough, through social, social media nowadays, when I put a post up, so often people will say to me, oh, I still have the hat you made for my, my first hat that, that uh, you made for me 25 years ago, or my daughter's got this hat now, it's a bit destroyed. Uh, so absolutely, I build up a relationship with them. Um, and I think in the future, it will be even more because I'll be doing fittings by FaceTime or Zoom or WhatsApp or saying, do you like the look of this? And put, putting my telephone so they can see what it looks like. So hats in their own way are communication. So that's why it's a, a thing which is going to roll on and roll on and roll on. Hats, you know, what defines a hat from the past and what defines a hat from now and what defines a hat from the future? Um, it's sort of all different facets of the same thing. And I think if you're into hats, you think about hats in that way too. Um, you were talking just now about having clients in Asia and their attitude to it. And they are a long way from England's class system and royals. And that is another part of you, isn't it? I believe that at Prince Harry's wedding, uh, Meghan Markle's mum, Doria, was wearing one of your hats. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And she was a wonder- is a wonderful and extraordinary woman uh, and very beautiful and had never really worn a formal hat before, um, but had a very strong sense of self and what suited her. And what's great when you're making a hat for a private client, it really is a collaboration because they have an idea of what makes them beautiful, uh, what they don't like, but they want to learn as well. So it really is a collaboration between both of us. I mean, I remember making a hat for you, Susie, um, when you went to Buckingham Palace for your OBE. You had quite a firm idea of what you wanted to have as well. Um, but you were a good listener and uh, I made you a lovely hat. It, indeed, it was gorgeous. Which, which you look gorgeous in. Obviously, you make hats for people who are outside the United Kingdom, royal or otherwise. But do Asian people really take any interest in hats? It's not part of their culture, is it? Well, Asian people do take interest in hats um, because they're very, very used to dressing up and dressing almost apart. If you think of Japanese bridal costume with the men who are wearing an almost samurai type um, uh outfit and the ladies who are wearing those very big egg-shaped hats, they are used to dressing up in a very particular way. Of course, a Western hat for them is quite alien, but they love the idea of occasion. And also for them, a hat is really a symbol of Europe. In the you know, if they think around the world people think that hats are a symbol of Britain in the way that they think that Paris is a symbol um, of romance. And for example, I work with Dior and Dior is a symbol of France and of romance and all those things. So yes, Asian people um, do, do like wearing hats. I mean, they wear them for different reasons, but of course, hats follow racing as well. So for example, at the Hong Kong races, at the dressage, which happens in Shanghai, they wear hats too. Of course, celebrities play an important role in your work. So what's it like? Tell us the secret of dressing Rihanna's famous head 
And what about Mick Jagger? I'm surprised that his hats don't fall off with all that shaking and strutting on the stage. Well, funny enough, Susie, that um, my relationship with Rihanna actually started with you. I don't know if you know this, um, but it was uh, a long time, quite a long time ago, really when she first started her career, um, Anna Winter featured her in American Vogue and they were talking and he she said the most wonderful thing in Paris is to go to a John Galliano haute couture show. So we were backstage after the show and I saw this gorgeous creature walking towards us and she had a little hat of mine on and she came to I walked towards her and I said you don't know me but that's one of my hats and she said yes you're Stephen Jones. And um, she said, I said, where did you get it from? She said, I just bought it in Dover Street Market. And you rotate, being the journalist you are, you rotate it on one heel and said, you bought it? Didn't your stylist get it for you? And she said, no, I love shopping. I, I think now the situation's different. She's so famous, it would be impossible for her to go into a normal shop. But I remember you writing this all down and making notes for the International Herald Tribune, I think. take you back take you back to something that you remember but we don't know much about before you were famous how was your childhood and the early part of your life you weren't brought up in london were you i think you were born in cheshire yes. and went to school in liverpool mm -hmm. which is a very vibrant city but i don't think it's actually known for grand soirees or i imagine fancy hats no not at all even though in my my mother and grandmother and all my family wore hats on a sunday because that's what you did. But however, um, Liverpool at that time in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, the, the, the Mersey Beat thing had gone, the Beatles thing, and it was incredibly, incredibly depressed and very, very poor. So um, my elder sister had come to London and I followed her to London as, as fast as possible. But Growing up, where I grew up was a very beautiful place. We we lived just by the sea, just opposite the sea. There was our house, and then the promenade, and then the sea. So a very, very early design inspiration was me looking out of my bedroom window and just looking at the clouds racing past every day and the, the different weather coming in. We were sort of sandwiched between the Welsh mountains on the left and the bright lights of Liverpool on the right. It was sort of idyllic. But I knew that I had to make my own world um, and I just didn't know how I was going to do it. And probably still don't, to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stephen, your life lit up when you were accepted as a student at Central St. Martins, mm -hmm. the British fashion school that has birthed so many famous designers like the incomparable John Galliano. What did it mean to you? Well, arriving at... St. Martin's, as it was called then, um, was extraordinary. I was from from Liverpool and I'd not lived in London before. And I came in on the very first day. I came in and there were all these girls wearing beige on one side of the room and there were a few punks on the other side of the room. And it was really, do I turn left or right? And I turned towards the punks and never looked back. And of course, there was the teaching and the people there. But somehow I started, you know, the unique thing about London is the real mixture between music and fashion, which is one of the things that Paris doesn't have and New York doesn't really have, but, and Milan certainly doesn't have. 
So within a few weeks of being in London, I'd met Stuart Copeland, who went on to form the police. Uh, I was living in Ralph Westhall's residence just by Battersea Park, not so far from where I am in now, with Kenny Morris, who was the drummer from Susie and the Banshees. And Shan, who was a girl on our course, went out with Shane, who was the lead singer of the Pogues. So suddenly I was in this music and fashion vortex and really in the centre of London. And it was extraordinary and exciting. And Derek Jarman lived just over the road. And I got to know Andrew Logan and Brian Eno and all these people. But what also was extraordinary is the fact that we were really making our own new fashion because the world of established fashion, whether it was Dior or Chanel or whether it was Bill Gibbon, whoever else, seemed a million miles away. So that sort of punk element of trying to do things in a different way, that sort of drive that we had, I had within myself, but also I learned very strongly from my classmates. And is it also true that while you were very seriously learning all about fashion, you went to the legendary Blitz nightclub wearing different headgear for every single visit? Yes, I I did go to the Blitz in my last year at college when I was supposed to be preparing for my final collection. I was actually going out a couple of nights a week. But yeah, the Blitz was an extraordinary place. And if every youth movement since the 60s had been defined by the drugs that they took, our drug was fashion and really was dressing up. And we would spend days and days working out what our look was going to be so we could not really parade in front of each other, but stake our claim to a certain sort of vision, a certain sort of visual language, which really we were exploring. You know, there was a vacuum created by punk and what was going to fill it. And we filled it with, I think, eclecticism and maybe a bit of history as well. You know, since the early 60s, history in a a funny way had not been so important as every politician had been saying during the 60s, you know, we're looking towards the future. And then suddenly we were looking slightly to the past. We weren't the only people, of course, Barbara Hulunicki was looking at the 30s and 40s and there was a mood of the moment. But I think somehow with what we were wearing and the new media which was being created at, at the beginning of the 80s, it struck a chord. And of course, this was the incredible time when there were no ways of copying or hearing or learning what was going on beside you. And your own salon, I believe you opened it in the 1980s, early on, and um, a millinery salon. The 1st of October, 1980, Susie. OK, now I know. (laughs) So that was in London's Covent Garden, a millinery salon. And so many designers over the years have claimed to have dressed rock stars and royalty. But I did a little bit of digging in your history and I see that you actually did, I think, in the same year, dress Princess Diana, Diana, Princess of Wales herself, and Boy George. Did they just hang out together in your store? Uh, No, they didn't. I met um, Diana, Princess of Wales through Jasper Conran, interestingly enough, and I made, some of the hats I made for her were to go with his outfits. Um, Boy George, I'd known for 
quite a few years. You know, when you're 20 years old or 21 years old, quite a few years is sort of forever. As, as, as you turn um, 40, you realise that quite a few years <laughs> has a different meaning. But I'd known um, George before he was boy George when he was the coat check boy at the Blitz Club. And uh, I remember driving around Parliament Square one day in my ex-GPO um, orange minivan and he was illegally squashed into the back and uh, he was singing and had the most beautiful voice you ever heard. And I said, you know, you should be a singer. You should do it professionally. And he said, oh, no, I, I don't think we, I've really got the confidence to do that. How times have changed. Um, but no, I don't know if they ever, if uh, Diana Princess of Wales and Boy George ever met each other. May, may, maybe they did. Um, but I'm sure, she, I'm sure she would have loved it. She, she would have loved it. And they wore very similar hats because they sort of loved, uh, 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 they loved something. They really knew about presentation and how they were going to appear. You know, this is the beginning of the media age. So it wasn't only how it felt for you. It's how you were going to appear in a photograph, which was suddenly extremely important. I was just going to ask about that. World now has changed so much. I mean, we everybody takes a photograph of everything and often many too many of the things they're wearing to keep your attention. But have you found that you yourself actually envisage when you're making a personal hat for somebody or when you're showing it on stage that what it actually is going to look like on Instagram? Do you think about that or do you just carry on as you always did? I... It's a combination of the two. Absolutely, in the media world we live now, and especially at this very moment, how we appear on a screen is what it's all about. But for me, I think when I'm making a product which is a luxurious product, it's about how it feels for the wearer as well. Because it is the fact that it's got a beautiful satin lining which is embroidered with the client's initials on it in the way that fur coats used to be in the 1940s. Or the fact that the client doesn't want to have a grain ribbon inside the hat but actually wants to have a little strip of lace to match her lingerie because it's completely about privacy. And all those little touches are things which for my clients are extremely important. Of course, Maybe it's to make a splash on Ladies' Day at Royal Ascot as well. But hopefully I can try and combine the two things. Because hats have always been about visuals. You know, they're about the sign that they send out. You know, uh, a, a bobby has got a policeman's helmet on. The queen wears a crown. The hat's always a sign, and, and I, as I said before, about communication. There's a different side of your work, of course, from making um, pieces, wonderful hats for clients, some of whom you know very well and are very faithful. But you've also got faithful designers. And your work is so different between the different designers, between Ray Kawakubo of Comme des Garçons and really relatively modernist, I would say, to John Galliano, so romantic and extraordinary, Mark Jacobs, slightly crazy but whimsical. Is each designer commission for you an island? meaning that it's in a world of its own. Absolutely. And it needs to be in a world of its own. You think of it as an island. I always think of it going into a cocktail party. 
So if you went into a cocktail party and you saw various friends, you stayed the same. But because you know those people, you would have a different conversation with those people. So the conversation that you would have with Ray Kawakubo would be very different to the conversation that you had with Mark Jacobs. Not only the conversation, but how you would present yourself during that conversation. So it it is very different. Of course, there's overlaps. But sometimes I do a, a mental design exercise for myself. Okay, I'm going to make a black bow. How would I make a black bow for Ray Kawakubo? How would I make a black bow for John Galliano? How would I make a black bow for Maria Grazia or Mark in New York? And each thing would have a nuance of individuality and maybe of subtlety, or maybe it would be very extravagant and completely different. But um, yes, Every designer is an island. Actually, that's a very good analogy because when a designer is creating their world around them, they do have to make this island because, as we know, as we discussed before, there is so much fashion. So what identifies them is crucially important. Conversely, what I love about working with different designers and being a milliner is I have a huge sense of freedom and it's that freedom and variety that I love. A hat, to me, has to be something that sits on your head. I've never said that before. <laughs> otherwise, it's not a hat to me. It could be a wonderful experiment, but not a hat. But I did do remember at London Fashion Week seeing Matty Boven and these extraordinary things. I don't know, you can describe them because you made them, but they were sort of a framework to the clothes. They weren't hats at all, and yet they were hats. Explain what I'm trying to say. Well, I was talking with Matty, and it's strange, working with a young designer, they really have no preconceived ideas about how I should be, and I don't really have any preconceived ideas about them. So... In a funny way, it's carte blanche. Also, it's. I think it's time to have fun. It's time to... There are no rules. So it, in, invent something new and something different. And he was showing me the collection. And I just thought, well, it would be very good. It, somehow you could have... You could make your... They seem to be clothes for making entrances, for making an entrance into a room. And I thought, well, how wonderful it could be if you could almost take your own room with you. So that's why I made curtains, so you could appear through your own curtains. Um, but these were actually supported uh, by a very discreet metal frame um, made extraordinarily enough by the crown maker from the, from the opera in Paris. <laughs> so, they, so, so it was beautifully made and very, very discreet. Um, but, and then, of course, we made the fabric, which we had to weigh to the closest gram to make sure that the girls could support that weight. So, in fact, to make them look effortless um, was probably as much work as designing an Airbus or something. <laughs> Not exactly, but it felt like that for me. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Let's hear a bit more about Dior with Galliano. You created for him some of the most extraordinary concoctions. Then it all changed when Raph Simmons came to Dior. His demands must have been completely different. Chalk and cheese, creative craziness and sweet severity. Tell us about working with John Galliano. Well, John was extraordinary. I'd started to work with him in 93, even though I'd known him before because my 
first assistant then became his first assistant. And uh, I introduced him to Stephen Robinson, who was this extraordinary guy who headed up the studio. When John left, um, you know, it, Bill Gayton was there and there was a real vacuum. And I knew Raph before he came to Dior because we'd worked together at Jill Sander and, uh, for a few seasons and, and I'd made um, great things with him. So, but he knew that hats were very much part of John's language and he wanted to do something different. However, for the first Haute Couture show, he knew that a veil was part of that mid-century gesture of elegance. So when the girls came out on the, for the normal show, they had nothing on their faces. And when they came out for the finale, they had veils in extraordinary colours. We had vintage veils from all over the world. I bought them in Japan, in America, in France, in Britain, and then re-dyed them to be his sorts of colours, like sharp electric green, uh, bright, bright blue, strange off pink, lavender. And these were what were around the girls' faces. But he really wasn't a hat person. But actually for his first Pret-a-Porter, I'll tell you a funny story about this. Um, what we had done, it was tie bows in their hair. And these were gazar bows. And they were going to be pinned almost at the nape of their neck. And a couple of days before the show, we tried the first one on and the girl walked. And of course, it bounced up and down. And he said, well, something in Dutch, first of all, which was fairly unrepeatable. And uh, then he said to me, but Stephen, we can't have them like that. We can't put them on. And I thought, well, what can I do? I said, wanting to say the situation and my contract. <laughs> uh, and I said, should we try them round the neck? And I had a piece of grain ribbon and I quickly pinned it up. And he said, that's the perfect accessory. And the first three outfits, which were black bar suits in men's mohair, so very, very, the ultimate crisp suiting, had these gazar neck bows accessorising and giving that touch of 50s Dior uh, femininity um, to their very, very classic outfits. How is that different from John Galliano? I remember some of the most extraordinary things that were sent out on the heads of the models, almost as extraordinary as the clothes. And working with John was completely different because the hats were absolutely part of the story. So when, when the Chinese mistress from the Kublai Khan ran to Egypt and then escaped on a train and ended up in Marrakesh, or one of the other extraordinary stories that John would tell. That's a hypothetical one, by the way. Um, a hat was written in to the very soul of the model who would be wearing it and the clothes that she would be wearing, because the role was created first of all, and then John dressed her. I've never actually articulated that before, but really he did create the role for the person, and then he dressed her. And that's often why like, the hair and the makeup and the face and the extremities came first. And then he built, filled in the gaps to create the complete look. It is quite funny that um, I, I didn't know you were going to ask me a question like that. And this is the complete truth. Uh, I never have time to do something like that. I never have the focus. And I think what's happening to us at the moment, for us busy, busy, busy people, suddenly... 
we don't feel guilty by focusing on one thing. But I'm sure when you're writing, Susie, you have to sort of seal everything else out in order to really get into that one thing, the art of writing, don't you? Yes, well, of course. I'm always thinking about my book, that book that everyone says I should write. But um, it's not so easy, but it'll come one day. And of course, I don't want to be the person saying to you, well, this is the perfect opportunity. I would never want to be saying that, Susie. (laughs) (laughs) True, though, it might be. Yes. So tell me about Dior today. You seem to have an interesting relationship with Maria Grazia. Anytime I've been backstage to see the prepping of the show, you're always there, this little figure running around, helping how the hat should be worn with the clothes. It's as though it really is working with somebody, not that you come out and plonk something on the head after you've seen the outfit. Do you see it all the way through? What? How's it done? Absolutely. Um, and when I first started working with Maria Grazia... It was very interesting. I I, um, asked her for lunch and her secretary said to me, don't you want to have a design meeting? And I said, no, for goodness sake, I'm, you know, been in the business for many years. So is she. We knew each other a little bit socially, but we'd never worked together. And I, we, we, we had to get to know each other. And if you have a friendship or a relationship, then I can make hats out of that. I don't really make a hats out of a design directive. It's the relationship. It's the conversation that I make the hat out of. So after the lunch, she said, well, would you be interested in working with me? I, and she said, I've never really done hats before. She said, I've done all sorts of accessories, but never hats. So I went back to the studio and uh, we talked about things. And um, a few weeks later, I made some prototypes. And she said, because, of course, normally what I do is I put the hat on and the gorgeous 18-year-old girl, tall and slim, walks up and down the room. And she said, Maria Grazia said, do you mind if I try it on? So I tried it on her and she said, I love how I look in this. She said, I wear hats all the time, you know. I'm such a good client of all the big hat companies, but I've never created them myself. So hats... And I started to talk to her about the design language of Dior and how the first things that he created were, in fact, not clothes, but he was a hat designer. He sold hat drawings just before the war to various great milliners in Paris. But that's really how he started. And she realized that hats could bring a real individuality to Dior, to Dior and show the marking of the seasons because she also believes that why should we be changing our clothes every two months, three months or something? And so, so, so some, of her ha- some of her clothes have a continuum to them, but she loves hats having a spontaneity or a freshness or what they can bring. Also, we talked before about the appearance of things in the media. Um, you know, a hat, often there won't be a picture of a foot, but there'll always be a picture of somebody's face. And then the hat interacts with the face. So... It assumes incredible importance, whether it's on a fashion show or an advertisement or a private client wearing it to one of the shows. I have seen you making for Dior some of the most fantastical and extraordinary hats in the world for John Galliano. I remember one and it had all sorts of things inside it as though it was a collection inside the head, really impossible even to describe. 
And yet I know that now you're working with Maria Grazio and as well as some striking hats, you're also doing some very practical things. I talked to her about it just the other day, making um, hats, um, which are actually making hats which are actually berets and are put in a nice um, box and then sold to people to give as presents. Is this two sides of your character? Well, I was talking just before about variety. So, yes, of course, I can make the great extravagances for John Galliano. And the ones that Dior were for correct at the time. But the one thing about fashion, it always keeps moving on. And quite often, the fact that you're wearing a hat is enough of a statement. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. And Maria Grazia's really got this idea that she wants to be able to make a hat for, you know, every young fashionable girl in the world and what will suit everybody. But the way that we came to the beret was quite funny, actually, because she'd just been in Los Angeles and I can't believe there's a dog barking outside. Can you hear it? Yes. Yes, you can. Oh, maybe I should... It's uh, fine, we like dogs. Yes, yes, okay. (laughs) (laughs) this never happens it's a bit like at work if we're filming then they decide to dig the street up outside somebody give it some dinner anyway so how the beret happened for Dior was quite an extraordinary story Maria Grazia had just been in Los Angeles and I think she'd bought in a market a beret with some sequins on and she showed it to me because she liked the embroidery not because she liked the beret and I said oh do you like this beret and she said well yes for the embroidery I said I love berets and then I began this tirade for 15 minutes of why I love berets so much that you know suit women men children rich poor every color in the rainbow they're universal they were you know Shaver Guevara wore a beret um, Johnny Rotten wore a beret Marlena Dietrich wore a beret so after about 15 minutes I think she told me to calm down and I was really exhausted at that point anyway and um, so She said, well, yes, let's do a beret. And um, I made some berets out of felt, as they're normally made. And But there was one beret that I'd slipped in, which I had not done a sketch for, which was a leather beret. And she looked at it and she said, oh, but this is too much a leather beret. But in fact, what happened when the girl was wearing a bar suit, but made out of taffeta, and I think with almost flat shoes. But when she put that leather beret on, it was the perfect counterpoint to the romance of Dior. And we were only making 10. And then about a week before the show, she said, could I have another 10, please? Could I have another 20, please? Could I have another 30, please? And that's how suddenly every girl wore a hat in the show. And it's been like that in almost every Dior show since, that every girl is wearing something on her head. Not all shows, but certainly the beret, we continue to sell it. It's made from the most perfect quality Napa leather with the same satin in the lining that the grand ball gowns are made of, the finest satin from France. And uh, it's hand embroidered with a little gold bee inside it. And it comes in a beautiful presentation box. I'm not going to ask you the price because I know I can't afford it. But Actually, Susie, that's a great challenge because what I want to do is to fit a Dior leather beret on you and find out the angle and the way that it would suit you. I think it would have to fit behind your little top knot, but that's a challenge if there ever was one. You're trying to take away my quiff. You'll never make it. No, no, no. I'll make it a Um, frame, Susie. 
I frame. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're both British, and I sometimes think that you have to be British to understand truly the joy and power of headgear. Are we all still yearning to ape the monarchy, do you think? Are best of Brits trying to be the Queen? Or are we just a little bit crazy, you, I and all the Brits? I think we are a little bit crazy, and I think that's what people from foreign countries like about us too, is the fact that we have this strange combination of huge classicism with a love of the avant-garde, and the two things can flip over from one to the other. And I think, you know, if we, if we think of uh, a gentleman, a gentleman and a lady, you know, what's he wearing? He's wearing a very, very classic outfit he's probably not wearing a bowler hat anymore but you know maybe the lady who's with him is wearing something crazy on her head and sees it as her self-expression not merely fashion i remember so clearly at our 2016 condé nast conference in seoul in south korea you told me on stage that quote everything in the world can be a hat what on earth do you mean by that well anything can be i mean Susie, we're looking at each other as well, as well as doing a podcast. So, you know, I can take this pink post-it, take my barrier off that I'm wearing at the moment and put a pink post-it note on my head. And you see, that's a hat. And and very cleverly, I've never done this before. It stays on, (laughs) thanks to 3M glue. Um, But yes, anything can be a hat. You know, what's the most beautiful hat? Um, A lily tucked behind a child's ear in Sri Lanka. Um, a, A little ribbon a, a black satin ribbon on coco on coco chanel's head with a twist of veiling put into it so sometimes the hats that i and other milliners are take weeks and weeks to make but sometimes the things which is most spontaneous also almost unusual can be a hat i mean the most famous hat like that is really when salvador dali took one of gala dali's shoes and put it upside down on her head a, on her head, and that became an idea of, for a Scaparelli hat, probably the most one of the most famous hats in the world. You showed us a lot of your wonders at your exhibition at London's Victoria and Albert Museum, two thousand and nine, I think it was, and it was extraordinary how they recreated your workroom so that people could actually see how things are made. I want to ask you now a difficult question for you: What would you personally class? as your hat of a lifetime? Oh, Susie, it's difficult. That's like trying to pick a favourite child. And I must add a comment about the workroom, which was like a real workroom. There was dust on the floor and ribbons and bits and pins and everything. And the night before the opening, well, the morning of the opening, we came in and the cleaners had tidied everything up. It was a nightmare. And suddenly I had to make it very untidy again. Um, But what's my favourite hat? Um, What's the greatest thing I don't know the greatest thing that I've done I think there's one particular hat which is called um, Rose Royce which is quite a apparently quite a simple hat it's a top hat made out of black velvet with dark dark red satin and the crown the top of the hat is scrolled round and it looks like a, a poire rose that's one but if I'm on this desert island discs of what can I take with me there's another one that I'd like to take which is 
a hat which is completely different, using very modern materials, uh, which is of a type of plastic, which is called wash and go. And it looks like water flowing around your head. It's transparent and has a lot of movement in. So, as I said before, it's the variety. Maybe it's because I'm a Gemini. I always want to have two of everything. (laughs) I think that you've given us the most wonderful view of the magic of hats taken us away from a lot of the things that we're all across the world going through at the moment not the happiest time i'd like to ask about you you always seem to me to be cheerful perhaps i always catch you at a good moment and i was wondering during this forced period of staying at home have you discovered any past or present pleasures are you reading a lot are you organizing those meters of ribbons that you've got stuffed in drawers and never sorted out Or are you just hanging out, making those hats that you always wish you had had time to create? Um, Well, Susie, it's funny you should ask this question. Um, Yes, I I am a born optimist, but I think if, if I was to ask anybody now, how are they getting on with being locked in at home all this time? They would say, oh, it's doing strange things to me. Um, and we're the ones who are healthy, so we're very lucky. Um, but in fact, Susie, um, I, you know, I, because I've always been traveling, I always have sketched. I make things in 3D, but I always sketch because from the very early 80s, I was sending faxes, drawings by fax to Rei Kawakubo in Japan and then on to emails. And nowadays I, you know, do a sketch in a little notepad and send it on my phone because I'm on the Eurostar to Paris for a meeting with with Dior and send it back to my workroom. But now, actually, my first collection I made all the twirls and in 2008, I went on holiday just to make some twirls. But I can never, ever slow down. And Susie, I'm actually going to take you on a little trip now and I'm going to show you what I've been doing, if I may. Hang on a second. So, as you can see here, these are all the little miniature twirls that I've been making over the past four weeks. These are all quarter-sized twirls. You can see, funnily enough here, they're all made out of this linen, and these are made out of folded post-it notes. And I have... um, a little half-size mannequin, which I'm trying to find now, which is magic. Oh, there's my computer, which has magically disappeared. Hang on. Oh, no. Where are we? Yes. Which has magically disappeared. But so that's what I've been doing. I've actually been emptying my mind and in the thick of work. Stephen Jones, you are a wonder of the world and not just the hat world. I feel very fortunate not just to hear your wise words, but to have a chance to see you in person with your wonderful hat. I don't know what it is, a beret, sort of white, gorgeous thing on your head. And, um, of course, all the people who are going to hear of this are not going to be able to see you. But with your wonderful descriptions of your amazing hats, I think they'll get a pretty good idea of our talk together. Thank you for talking to Condé Nast and to me, Susie Menkes. It's been a very informative lesson. Thank you, Susie. It's been wonderful to talk to you. And I still love your purple glasses. Stephen, thank you so much for spending this time with us. What interesting stories you've shared with us. I do hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. 
Thank you all for joining us this week. I hope you've all enjoyed our second episode and had a real insight into something so often dismissed as frivolous. Last week, we thanked all healthcare and key workers around the world and the many in our industry who continue to work together and to help protect our doctors, nurses and frontline workers in the fight against COVID-19. I'm sure that you will all join me as we thank them again for their continued work. And do come back and join me next week when I'll be in conversation with the funny, profound and thoughtful Albert Elbaz. In the meantime, on behalf of Condé Nast, this week and always, I would like to wish you well and Stephen and his team a safe and healthy week ahead. If you would like to find out more about our conference, please do visit cniluxury.com. To find my articles, visit the fashion channel of vogue.co.uk and at Susie Menke's Vogue on Instagram. If you have enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, YouTube and many others. Support for Creative Conversations podcast comes from the Condé Nast Luxury Conference. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan and edited by Tim Thornton. Music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace and production assistance by Lauren Sweeting.